Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Exodus, the story of God leading his chosen people out of slavery in Egypt, stands as a pivotal event in the Old Testament. But if you listen closely, you will hear echoes of this story of redemption all throughout God's word. Using music as a metaphor, the authors point us to the reoccurring theme of the Exodus throughout the entire symphony of scripture, shedding light on the Bible's unified message of salvation and restoration that is at the heart of God's plan for the world. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Biblical Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jonathan Wright, your host. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Alistair J. Roberts about his new book, co-authored with Dr. Dr. Andrew Wilson, Echoes of Exodus, Tracing Themes of Redemption Through Scripture. Dr. Roberts, who earned his PhD from Durham University, is one of the participants in the Mere Fidelity podcast and is the adjunct senior fellow with the Theopolis Institute and works for the Davenant Institute. Dr. Roberts, welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me on. Yeah, I wonder if we could begin um, by you just sharing how you became interested in biblical studies. I suspect it goes back to my parents' influence. My father was a pastor in the Republic of Ireland when I was growing up. My mum was always spending a lot of time with us, teaching us scripture. And it was almost like a great um, development of lots of Tinder. And then finally, the spark of interest, when it hit that, it just went up in flames. And there was just so much excitement about the text for me. But so much of the foundation had been laid by my parents early on. And that spark of interest, I think, was really... Um, something that developed not immediately in my interest in theology. Initially, I was more into systematic and philosophical theology and apologetics. But it was coming across the work, particularly of James Jordan, that inspired me to think about the Bible more in terms of narrative and um, musical patterns, typology, symbolism. And those ways of looking at scripture excited me about the text to a degree that I had never been before. And it made the text come alive. And all the knowledge that I had about the text started to come together into uh, a bigger picture, a single picture, not just lots of isolated biblical stories, but a single theme running through all of them. And in many ways, that's what I was trying to capture in this book with Andrew Wilson. Yeah. So maybe you could explain how that came about. How did you and Dr. Wilson decide to write this book? Well, Andrew and I have been working for quite some time together just on the Mere Fidelity podcast. We're co-hosts of that podcast with Derek Rishmari and um, Matt Lee Anderson. But I, for a particular Lent, decided as a personal project, I would take up um, something new, which was to write a post every single day for my blog on the subject of Exodus. And I generally take up a project like this every Lent. This was a bit too ambitious. I was ending up writing for 
thousand words every single day and it was just too much. So I abandoned it about two, I think it was about two and a half weeks in. So at that point, I left it to one side and I wanted to return to it, but never got round to it. Then Andrew came across my series, started reading and he, and he said, this is amazing stuff. We need to do something with this. So he got in contact with me and we talked about it for a while. He got in contact with, Cross, with Crossway and from there it became a book project. He took my, I think it was about 150,000 words of text that I'd written on the subject, knocked it down to 40,000 words of readable text in a far more condensed and pithy and powerful um, presentation. And then that became the book. Wow. Yeah, that that is so interesting. So at the start of the book, you set out to convince readers that scripture contains all sorts of connections and riffs and themes that maybe readers might not have noticed, especially that the Exodus is central to the scripture, central to the gospel, and then central to the Christian life. You begin by justifying the use of a musical metaphor for reading scripture. Could you explain what, why it's important to start there? One thing that music does, I think, is it explains something about the interconnectedness of time. When we think about time more generally, we can just think about sequences of moments, one moment after another in sequence. But music exposes the fact that time is more complicated than that. It's richer than that. It's far more um, variegated than that. And using that motif of music, you can understand, I think, something of the way in which themes can develop over time. The rhythm of something is important. The way in which certain motifs can play out at certain points. And when we're reading scripture, that is much of what we see happening. There are certain themes that are played again and again with um, slight variations each time. Sometimes they're played in full and in a very elaborate and developed form, and other times they're played in very rudimentary and suggestive form. Sometimes they're just beneath the surface, and other times they're very overt, straight up in your face. There's no way to avoid them. And exploring that, I think you find some though these realities, you find that the metaphor of music gives you a lot more of a purchase upon the actual character of the biblical text than many of the other metaphors that we might work in terms of. So it's the one that we settled upon um, in part because it expresses the beauty of the text. It expresses the interconnectedness of the text. It expresses the way in which there is a sense of expectation and movement within the text, movement towards rest and resolution. But that movement is often... um, held off in a degree of suspension of that resolution. It's not arrived yet. And so we're working towards it. So music is a metaphor that can play in many different ways. It gives us a sense of things moving towards resolution. It gives us um, some way to talk about motifs playing out. It gives us a way to think about the way times can be connected in a unity without um, being collapsed into a single moment. Um, and many other things like that, that no other metaphor seem quite so powerful for capturing those realities. Yes. Yeah. And I, I think you do a great job of explaining that and then expressing how that works. And you begin in, in chapter two, entitled The First Supper, 
um, by showing how the theme of Exodus fits into Jesus's institution of that regular communal meal. So I wonder if you could just help explain how Exodus fits into that theme. Well, when Jesus celebrates the um, Last Supper with his disciples, he's not celebrating in a vacuum. He's celebrating at a particular time of the year, at a time that was pregnant with meaning and anticipation and remembrance, all these things that were associated with the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of the Passover. So when he celebrates this meal, he's taking things that are already um, freighted with significance. He's taking up the bread and the wine, and the bread and the wine are established parts of an existing meal. It's almost as if someone were um, for instance, if you begin a story with the words once upon a time, those words could be just introducing any sort of story. But we're familiar with those words. Those already have a meaning to them. They're connected with fairy stories. And so when you hear those initial words, you know that either you're hearing a fairy story or hearing, or you're, you are hearing something that's pl- playing with that sort of motif or playing off against it, some ironic reversal or something. When Jesus celebrates the Last Supper, he is doing something similar. He's taking something that already has meaning, and he's relating it to a fuller development of that meaning. Now, in the Old Testament, you have the institution of the Passover in the context of the Exodus. God is delivering his people from Egypt, and as part of that deliverance, he institutes this meal, which is celebrated by all the people within their houses as they're about to leave the um the land they've been in for all those years. This is a meal of deliverance. It's a meal that is also instituted for ongoing celebration. It's not just a once-off celebration. It's something that they're supposed to celebrate in the future to remember and to memorialize what has just taken place. Jesus, in a similar way, takes that existing meal and then relates it to an event that is about to take place, a new exodus, and he establishes it as a memorial of that. So there is an existing meal that exists to memorialize a past deliverance. Then Jesus takes that existing meal and he establishes it as a memorial of a new deliverance. And that, I think, is developed with many other themes that surround it. Jesus talks about his deliverance in um, the Mount of Transfiguration as the exodus that he was about to achieve at Jerusalem. He talks about himself as he's the Passover lamb, and he's described that way by the gospel writers, also by John the Baptist. And in this and many other ways, I think Jesus is framed for us by that existing event of the Exodus and the fact that he celebrates the Passover meal with his disciples and uses that context as a context to deliver a sign that will memorialize that event, I think helps us to see just how close Jesus' ministry and deliverance is with the Old Testament deliverance of the Exodus. Absolutely. Yeah, that is that is so enriching and fascinating. So then in the first movement of your book entitled Out of the House of Slaves, you cover various texts from the Pentateuch. What what themes do you want readers to see from these texts? Well, just by nature of the sheer wealth of the material that there is in the Pentateuch, you can only skate over the surface. But 
there are a great many ways in which the story of the Exodus is played out in advance. If you read the story of um, Abraham, the first thing that he does when he has gone through the land is there's a famine and he goes down to Egypt. And in Egypt, Sarah is taken or Sarai is taken and there are plagues upon Pharaoh. Then Abraham, Abraham um, has Sarai delivered back to him as um, Pharaoh realizes her, her identity. And he is sent away with many goods. He comes into the land. He walks through the land, spies it out, as it were. And then he wins a great victory in the land in chapter 14. And it seems that he is playing out the story of his descendants in advance. It's an Exodus story even before the events of the Exodus have occurred. We see similar things in the story of Jacob, or we find similar things in the story of Isaac and the story of the brothers going down into Egypt and the story of Joseph is all playing against the background of these events and anticipating what is about to come. The whole book of Genesis ends on the theme that anticipates Exodus. Joseph is being buried. And as Joseph is buried, there is this promise that the Lord will bring them up out of there and that when he does, they will bring his bones with them. And at the very end of Joshua, you have the burying of the bones of Joseph. The story has actually gone back to the point at Shechem where Joseph had been sent into Egypt. So the story has the event of the Exodus as its um, the framework within which all of these things are taking place, even before the actual event of the Exodus has occurred. We see similar things in the story of Moses himself. Before Israel experiences an Exodus, Moses has a sort of Exodus. He is drawn out of the water, as Israel will later be drawn out of the water. He's delivered. He goes to um, Mount Sinai, and he meets with the Lord there in anticipation of Israel's meeting with the Lord at Mount Horeb or Sinai. So I think what we're seeing in these cases are ways in which the single story of the Exodus is played out in many different musical forms with variations and developments and the themes that we find played out most fully in the event of the Exodus itself are themes that have already been introduced and developed quite some, quite considerably before we ever reach the opening pages of the book of Exodus itself. Right. Yeah. And that theme then, um, as you show in the book, especially into the third movement, you show how that theme then continues in the rest of the Hebrew Bible. So what about elsewhere? Does does the Exodus theme continue even in places like the writings and, and the prophets? Yes, we find the theme is pretty much throughout the scripture. And there, this is not the only theme that we find within scripture being played out on many occasions. Some have identified type scenes where you'll have a particular form of event that is repeated on a number of occasions. There are several examples of this. Meeting a woman to well is one that's often given. I think Robert Alter is the one that highlights that. Then there are other ways in which we can hear the stories that have happened earlier in Scripture being played out later. So if you read the story of Jacob and read the story of Jacob against the background of the story of David, David replays the story of Jacob in many ways. For instance, you have the encounter with Nabal at the time of sheep shearing. And then coming to attack Nabal with 400 men and being pacified by giving gifts, that's playing out the story of Jacob with Laban. Laban, of course, is Nabal backwards in Hebrew as in English. 
And that period of time, again, Jacob leaves Laban at the time of sheep shearing. There was a man, his brother, who comes towards him with 400 men seeking to kill him, it seems, and then being pacified by the gifts that are sent before. And we see the same thing in the themes of Exodus. Those themes are played out in various ways. And sometimes there are ironic reversals. So if we see the story of Hadad the Edomite or um, the story of Jeroboam, they have dealings with Egypt that seem to be a reversal of or an ironic play upon the story of Israel's time in Egypt. And that's already been the case. Israel's story in Egypt is not the only, um, there are ways in which that story is playing out against a wider backdrop. It begins, we're first told about the event of the Exodus and their time of persecution in Egypt in the context of Abraham and Sarai's persecution of an Egyptian in their house. They're told that they'll be afflicted for many years as foreigners in a land not their own. And then the next chapter, we find that there is a woman in their house being afflicted in a similar way. And then the story of Hagar provides a backdrop for what's taking place later. In the story of the kings, we see um, Solomon's story having Exodus themes. Solomon becomes, in the end, a character like Pharaoh. And so many of the judgments upon Israel occur as Israel becomes like Egypt. You can have the story of um, Ahab being another example. Ahab wants to take the vineyard of Naboth and turn it into a vegetable garden. Egypt has been described as a vegetable garden in the book of Deuteronomy. He's trying to turn the vine of Israel into the vegetable garden of Egypt. And then there's many themes of the fall playing out there again. So these stories are familiar stories, but they're remixed in different ways. And by the time that we develop through the story of the exile, we arrive at a new exodus as the people are brought back into the land and it's playing out exodus themes once more. So I think what we're seeing is not just a straightforward repeating of the same theme again and again. There are inversions and there are um, ironic twists upon the tale. There are ways in which the exodus is replayed, but with twists at points and other times when we see it being replayed in a far more straightforward way. So it's an exciting and subtle um, approach, I think, to reading the text, one that I think gets the connections between the texts, but does not collapse them into each other. Right, absolutely. Yeah, it is very uh, enlightening and, and helpful as we approach, especially the Hebrew Bible, with that theme of Exodus. I'm just curious, um, why do you think that this theme is used so much? And, and do you want to maybe talk a little bit about how um, maybe the authors of the Hebrew Bible, um, how they used it and kind of what the function of the story of Exodus was? The story of Exodus, I think, is it's interesting because the actual deliverance from Egypt is not that to which most of the material of the Pentateuch is devoted. A lot of the material of the Pentateuch is given to instituting the event, to ensuring that that event becomes a continued pattern of reality for the ongoing life of Israel. So what the actual event provides is the foundation for the covenant order. It provides the fundamental pattern of divine deliverance that will be replayed in the law of Israel. So, for instance, 
the entire civil law takes the Exodus event as its foundation. Or you can think about the rituals of the calendar. If you read Leviticus chapter 23, it's playing out Exodus themes throughout. So the first feast of the year is the feast of the Passover and unleavened bread. That recalls the first celebration of the Passover. And then leaving Egypt, the feast of unleavened bread, when they leave the leaven behind in Egypt and they bake unleavened bread, and then they spend the first night having left Ramses and going to Succoth. That first movement of the Exodus is commemorated in that first celebration in the first month. It's made into the first month at the time of the Exodus. As you move through, there are other feasts that look back to the Exodus. You can think about the way in which the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost as we call it, became associated with the events at Sinai. It was the event at which the law was given, and it commemorated Moses going up on the mountain, meeting the Lord, all these different things associated with that, the theophany, the gift of the law, the gift of the plans for the tabernacle. All of these were then brought down, and then Israel's life is played out through this Exodus pattern throughout the year. And then the final celebration of the year, the great feast in the seventh month, is the Feast of Tabernacles, exactly six months away from the first feast, which is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And if you look at them alongside each other, you'll see that they are bookends for the entire half of the year. And the feast at the end of the year commemorates them dwelling in booths. It commemorates Succoth. It's the first place where they go to once they leave Egypt, which is exactly the same event as um, the Feast of Unleavened Bread celebrates, but from a different angle. So, so the Feast of Tabernacles celebrates the event from the perspective of leaving an old home and living in a new home and this moving around from place to place in booths. And then the other one, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, celebrates leaving behind that principle of growth, the sourdough that was moved from one loaf to another. And now they're starting anew. They're making a new loaf. And that, I think, helps us to see it within the calendar. The Sabbath is the great symbol of, it's the sign that's given to Israel for the Exodus. It's given in chapter 31 of Exodus in a way that highlights that this is the symbol. This is the um, sign, much as circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. So the Sabbath is the sign for the story of the Exodus. And then it's instituted in the tabernacle. The tabernacle is, as it were, a movable mountain, a portable Sinai that takes with them that encounter with the Lord on the mountain, and it provides it as this constant reference point by which they can live their relationship with God. And there are many other ways in which it takes place as providing a framework for future redemption. This is the fundamental event that shapes expectation as well. If you read the prophets, they're often talking about future deliverance in terms of Exodus. It's going to be a new Exodus that's going to occur. Um, the book of Isaiah is perhaps the great example of this. Exodus is the paradigm for future deliverance. And then I think there are other ways in which it provides a framework for thinking about deliverance. It's the context in which God reveals himself. God reveals himself in the event of the burning bush, and then later on at Sinai. And his identity is bound up with the way that he proved his supremacy over the gods of the Egyptians in the plagues, in these great judgments upon the kings of the land, 
the um, kings of the Transjordan and then as they go into the land with Joshua. These are the fundamental events of Israel's life and identity. And then those are continued. So the Exodus is never an event that's left behind. The Exodus is something that is the fundamental event for Israel's identity and their practice ongoing. It's seen in the Sabbath. It's seen in the celebration of the rites of the tabernacle and the temple. It's seen in the way that they're constantly retelling the story of the Exodus in the Psalms and elsewhere. So when Jesus comes and he takes all this fabric and relates it to himself, he is taking something that is already charged with memory and anticipation. And he is showing that he is the one that fits into that place of memory and anticipation that has been established. He's the one who appeared to Moses on the Mount of Sinai. He's the one who brought his people out of Egypt. He's the one who is going to bring the anticipated new exodus. He's the one who's going to fulfill the expectation that was built into that original event and realize the promises that were given to the prophets. Yes. Yeah, that's such a crucial background to understand, uh, especially in as we approach the, your final movement entitled The Great Deliverance. You go to the New Testament and yeah, I would, I'd love for you to talk about how the Exodus appears in the New Testament and how that theme helps us read the New Testament texts. The way that the gospel writers tell their story, I think, on many occasions is designed to make us think about the Exodus. If you read the first pages of your New Testament, you'll see a character called Joseph, the son of Jacob, who has dreams and then brings his people into Egypt. We've read that story before. It's the story of Joseph being sold to the Ishmaelites, going down to Egypt, etc., and his dreams before that. But here it's a different Joseph, and it's the father of Jesus who brings his people, his family, Mary and Jesus, down into Egypt to deliver them from the wrath of a new pharaoh. But this pharaoh is Herod, and the Herod in this that pharaoh in this case is the king of Israel, the one who's ruling within the land. But yet there are people who come from afar, magicians, who in the former story of the Exodus were the opponents, the magicians that stood against Moses and Aaron. But now they are the people that come from afar to see this newborn king. So there's already a story of Exodus playing out there. Then we're told as Jesus leaves Egypt after the killing of the baby boys that reminds us of the story of the initial Exodus and the attempt to kill the Hebrews' infants. We have that quote from um, the book of Hosea, chapter 11, verse 1, out of Egypt I've called my son. But now it's applied not to the original event of the Exodus, but to the event of Christ leaving Egypt, that Christ is the Son of God. He is the one who's fulfilling the meaning of this past event. And it goes on. If we go to the um, chapter of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, he is led up by the Spirit into the wilderness after his baptism. The crossing of the water, then spending a period of 40 days, corresponding with the 40 years, in the wilderness. There is already an extra shape to Jesus' life from the very beginning of his ministry. And as we move through the ministry, we'll see many other examples like that. Jesus, for instance, in John chapter 6, a story that's told by all of the Gospels in some form or other, goes into the wilderness, crosses over the Sea of Tiberias, 
and is followed by a great multitude. And while in the wilderness, they need food. So he provides a manna for them. But the manna is the multiplication of the bread and the the loaves and the fish. And then he gives this manna discourse. And in the same way, he prepares his disciples to lead the people, dividing the people into 50s sitting alongside each other, much as Moses divided the people divided the people among the elders in chapter 18 of Exodus. So these themes are familiar ones. We're hearing the story playing out again. And then, of course, all of this comes to a greater expression in the story of the crucifixion and the movement towards Jerusalem. Jesus ends up playing out the story of the um, Exodus in a very pronounced way in his death and resurrection. He says in his conversation with um or it said in his conversation with Elijah and Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration, that they were talking about the exodus that he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem, this greater event of deliverance that will fulfill all the Old Testament promises and realize that pattern of redemption. So he is the um, firstborn son who dies. There's darkness over the land. He is the one who is the recipient, the one upon whom all the plagues fall that he bears that for the deliverance of his people. He's the one who comes up from the grave like Israel comes out of the Red Sea. He's the one who, 50 days later, um, there is the gift of the Spirit instead of the law and recalling the events of Sinai. He is the one who is the fulfillment of the Passover. He's the one who's the fulfillment of Sinai. He's the one who, like Moses, will lead the people, but he will, like Joshua, lead them into the promised land and into the real promised land, not just the land of Israel, but a greater land into God's very presence. And so when the New Testament talks about the deliverance of Christ, it will often appeal to this Old Testament backdrop, presenting that as the framework, the paradigm within which to think about what Christ is doing. This is the motif that Christ is bringing to its full expression. Yes, yeah, and that motif is, yeah, is I think crucial for understanding New Testament texts. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad that you wrote this book with Dr. Wilson. I think it's incredibly enlightening and helpful. Um, before we rec- wrap up, Dr. Roberts, would you mind sharing with us uh, maybe current or future research projects? Well, perhaps the main thing that I have on at the moment is um, over the next couple of years or so, I'm going to be completing an comp- entire commentary on the biblical text. So about 15 minutes reflection on every single biblical passage. And I've so far finished almost all of the Pentateuch. I finished all the Pentateuch halfway through Joshua and done almost all the Gospels. So it's a, long- a long-term project, but one of the things I'm hoping to do is to show how this can be a way of reading scripture more generally, that these themes are not just isolated things here and there, but it's an entire way of reading the biblical text. And the more that we read it, the more we'll find that it bears out this particular approach. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on to this podcast today. Um, I, yeah, I encourage all our readers to go pick up um, this book, Echoes of Exodus. I think that it will really help you fit the uh, fit the storyline of the Bible together and to see how it is a unified story um, 
including this grand narrative of the Exodus. So to all our listeners, you've been listening to New Books Network. And until next time, I'm your host, Jonathan Wright. Take up and read.